Hello and welcome to tonight's live episode of Becoming Multiplanetary. Uh, it's not very often we run these live, but uh, we've got a couple of videos actually to show in today's episode. So that's why we're doing this live today. Uh, the topic today is going to be the Gateway Foundation, Voyager Station, and the Gravity Ring, and also Orbital Assembly. Um, they all made an interesting announcement recently. We're going to be covering some of that, including showing some of the footage. And yeah, Kage, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Hello, everyone. I am Kage, one of the co-hosts for Becoming Multiplanetary. Thank you all for joining us. So, without further ado then, let's get started straight into it. What I'm going to show first is a video called See the Inside of the Voyager Station, and it's effectively a, a video mock-up of what the eventual Voyager Station is going to look like. So I'm going to start with that, so you all have a, a visual image to go from before we get stuck into the meat and bones of this thing. And there we have our first video. So, Kage, is that your first time seeing that video? Uh, no, it is not. So that video is from the Gateway Foundation. Uh, it's, as Rich mentioned, titled See the Inside of the Voyager Station and How to Help Us Make It Happen. That was published on January 19th of this year, 2021. And it's a concept video, uh, 3D render that the Gateway Foundation has released to demonstrate where the Orbital Assembly Corporation, how they want to build the Voyager station in low Earth orbit which we'll talk about a little bit more uh, throughout the show. But uh, the, the concept is actually really interesting because it shows a few things that are kind of interesting assumptions, I think. For example, one of the parts within the video is that you can see there are two starships that are docked to the uh, center of the orbiting space station. And secondly, there are uh, what look like in, uh, inflatable habitat modules on the exterior of the ring of that space station. And that implies that the Gateway Foundation is looking to partner with SpaceX. But additionally, there could be a desire from the Gateway Foundation or Orbital Assembly Corp. There, there's kind of a little bit of a blurring of the lines there because they're both basically the same organization. Just one focuses on the uh, space station. The other focuses on, I guess, I'm not exactly sure how they split themselves up uh, on that. So but, the way it works is Orbital Assembly takes care of the hardware requirements, whereas uh, the Gateway Foundation is more about outlining the concept and the spec document and kind of that kind of stuff. Gotcha. So the other thing that is an interesting depiction from the 3D render concepts that the Gateway Foundation released in January is it kind of looks like there are Bigelow modules on the exterior of the space station. And for those who aren't familiar with Bigelow, Bigelow Industries created a inflatable habitat module that is uh, currently still to this day docked to the International Space Station and is inflated and currently used, I think, for storage. And it's so far proven to be a resounding success. However, Bigelow Industries has since uh, filed for bankruptcy and they are unfortunately no longer uh, in operation for, as far as, as far as I can tell, they're no longer in operation for building these modules. So it remains to be seen how exactly that would work out if those are in fact inflatable Bigelow habitat modules. Yeah, as you've said, from what we can see in the video, they do look remarkably like the, the Bigelow modules that we've seen before in concepts as well. Some uh, concept that was pretty similar to the Voyager station, actually. There are also little shuttles that are attached to it, which kind of look like 
I don't remember what the exact uh, number is. Uh, uh, X thirty five or, or or something like that. It's the uh, the the mini shuttles that are sent up uh, for like two year long uh, missions. They kind of look like that, which makes me wonder where are those going to come from. Who are going to manufacture those? They appear to be escape pods for the space station, but I haven't really heard much about that other than just what they've shown in this concept art. Yeah, I mean, we've got the 3D markup here. We do have more footage that we'll be looking at shortly as well. I just wanted to go a little bit over what we've seen first. So we've seen Voyager Station now. One of the biggest goals that they wanted to have was to be able to do automated construction in space. And that's how they were planning to build the ring segment of Voyager Station using these automated construction methods. And very recently, they just released a video where they actually show this in action. And we're going to be coming onto that really shortly. Oh, that's an interesting one from uh, one of our Patreons, actually, Howard Walker in chat. They were saying during the announcements, they said that the pods would be rigid, so probably not Bigelow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's going to make things a little bit interesting and uh, I, probably more challenging, considering that given given the scale of how things look there, that won't be an easy task to manufacture those to be rigid structures because either they're going to have to construct them in space using the same or similar methodology to how they build the rest of the uh, orbital structure, or they're going to have to transport them up either uh, in complete pieces or partial pieces on probably starships, because I would imagine that would be the only craft capable of carrying something that large. And given that they have, I, I forget how many they said that they would have there, that would take quite a few starships. I wonder if you could send them in discrete units in some kind of foldable fashion where you could effectively quote-unquote fold the module into a collapsible unit and then send it in discrete units in cargo bays on starships. Perhaps, but then that's not so far different from an inflatable module at that point, really. It's just um, instead of instead of being inflatable cloth-like modules, it's then something that just unfolds and would inflate to some effect anyway, because there would be uh, some sort of uh, internal pressure to maintain the rigidity of the uh, structure. So there's, yeah, it's uh, really interesting to see where they're going with this. It'd be interesting to see if, uh, further announcements for it, that's for sure. So the video that I'm going to be moving on to next is the video where they demonstrate some of this technology. And it's the opening clip of the two hour long, I believe it was like a sort of presentation come sales pitch come Q&A session for the general public, really. So the, the, the clip we're going to be showing is the very first part of that. And uh, yeah, enjoy this. Some of the stuff you'll see here is absolutely great. on tonight's show there's a hotel in space wait did they say there's going to be a movie theater the space station is going to be the first commercial space station with artificial gravity the world's first space hotel. It'll have gravity, full working kitchens, bars, and more. I love the fact that in the marketing, you know, they highlight this. They say, we'll have gravity, which is a really cool thing to hear. It's like a, a, good it's a feature. It's a feature. Are you guys going to be among the 100 people?
for the evening. Orbital Assembly Corporation. So, you've seen the self-assembly of the D-Star commissioning now. That was some pretty impressive stuff. What did you think, Huck? So I noticed some things in particular. If you go back to the 47 second mark there, one of the things I noticed is that from this point uh, on through the rest of the video, they actually show the, starting from here, they show some of the like uh, cutaways of what it would look like uh, during the assembly process. So first, what they're showing is the the individual pods here, as well as the connecting trusses in between them. And if you go a little bit further beyond that part, they start showing uh, part of the uh, construction process, how it would be built in individual modules and have, it looks like, hold on a second, let me skip ahead a little bit here. Hope you so like loving the, this little show and tell yeah. here, audience. <laughs> yeah, there's there's like, if you go ahead just a little bit further to the 49 second mark, it kind of looks like they have dragon capsules attached to it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, on the left and the right. Yep, I see. And them. on the bottom, uh, it looks like oh. a dragon cargo. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, actually, no, maybe not a dragon cargo. I, I don't know what. No, it's. I'm pretty sure it's a dragon cargo because it's got the dragon logo on the trunk. Huh. Yeah, it's um it's really interesting. Uh so it looks like they have some plans for how to build this out in uh progressive stages and this particular render here where they have dragon what looks like dragon capsules attached to either end of it. This makes me wonder about how later on in the video uh that uh this this screen grab is from they discuss how they want to do a lot of automation with building this entire assembly. And one of the things that they are uh, pushing for is doing uh, a lot of robotic assembly. As a matter of fact, the D-Star and P-Star, those, the um, P-Star especially, uh, which when they build the gravity ring, which we'll talk about in a little bit, is the prototype structural truss assembly robot. And as the name implies, it's going to be something that automatically builds this entire assembly. But this is what makes me wonder about how far are they going to automate this process and how much of this are they going to have uh, humans involved in the building of this structure? Or perhaps in this particular screen grab, this is where they're going to do like some prototyping, send some humans up, see if the whole thing holds together, and then if everything seems to work out okay, then automate the rest, or... That, that part's not quite clear to me, but it's it's pretty interesting, this this render. And there's, again, also at the top, that mini shuttle, which I still don't know where that's going to come from. I would love to know uh, who's going to make that. Yeah, I, you're right, though. It does pretty much look like a miniature space shuttle. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, uh, if I remember from the earlier days, I don't know whether this concept still holds or whether they've altered their plans since announcing it, but from the earlier videos, maybe from like a few months back, maybe more than that, I forget how long, what they were intending to do is have them build the outer ring, the P-Star machine that will build the outer ring, and then they will put basically a pressurized cabin in the center, and that is going to be the first human engineer's workspace stroke sleeping quarters. It's like a little maintenance pod that's going to sit in the middle, and they're going to spoke it up. And then from that, they can then uh, travel along the spokes if required to be able to service the ring and, and start adding to it. So I'm not sure exactly how much of this is all going to be automated, but 
the good news is the more that they can do, then the less that the less risk there is to humans who might be traveling up to do engineering work on the ring, because it'll be in a more stable, more structurally sound state, uh, rather than getting them up there soon. Um, you know, automate as much as you can, get it as safe and as structurally sound as you can, and then send the engineers there. You know, if they can automate that, then that's great. Yeah, and I, I'm still I'm still hung up on that little shuttle. I'm I'm wondering if that's going to be like a human certified Boeing X thirty seven or something. The orbital test vehicles that they send up, it kind of really looks like one of those, and from the scale, might be. But going back to what you were saying about uh, the ring assembly, there are actually two things that they're going to be doing. There's first the P star, or rather the P star process that they're going to use to build the gravity ring, which they talk about later in this video, and that is going to be the uh, kind of the real world. Test of if they can do a either fully or at least semi-automated uh, assembly of the final Voyager station, which is what I believe this particular mock-up is uh, coming from, the uh, what would end up being the final uh, product of the Voyager station. Should we uh, talk a little bit about the gravity ring first? Yeah, so effectively, the gravity ring is a, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, this is a th- a quarter size replica or three so i can't math right now it's effectively Uh, a scaled down replica of the ring segment of voyager station yeah the the uh gravity ring will be 60 meters or 200 feet in diameter and the voyager station will be 200 meters or over 600 feet or for americans listening over two football fields long as the uh, diameter of the station and that is uh of the diameter of voyager station or the diameter of gravity ring sorry the gravity ring will be 60 meters. The Voyager station will be 200 meters. Right. And the entire reason they're doing this is to prototype that the P-Star will do, manage to do what it's supposed to do. And that is effectively construct a ring in space. So by downscaling it, they're using less materials for the test. You know, and if there is any problems, then there's no big loss with this. It's effectively like any company that's prototyping any technology. They're just prototyping the technology, getting it done, making sure it's all good. And then they'll upscale it to the full version for Voyager Station. Not only that, but also to test that it will actually retain structural integrity once they apply rotational force to it. And uh, later on in the video, they also mentioned that they want to not only test that they can spin it up, but it'll also maintain structural integrity in spin and that they can also slow it down to a stop and then restart it again. So there are a lot of things that they want to, to test with the gravity ring. I believe they said that they want to spin it to about Mars gravity, which yeah. I'm not sure the math on that, uh, how fast that would be spinning, but I think that would be about uh, two or three rotations a minute. Uh, if I recall correctly, something like 40% Earth gravity, I think, somewhere yeah, I think- in that region. Either way, there is a segment from this video which actually talks in depth about gravity ring. We're just going to play a segment of that, and uh, we're going to do some reactions on that after. Thank you for taking us through that, Tim Alatori. Now I want to turn it over to OAC co-founder, Chief Visionary Officer, and Chief Scientist, Dr. Jeff Greenblatt. He has a PhD in chemistry with 20 years experience working in climate change, energy technologies, and space technologies. He founded the energy and space consultancy firm Emerging Futures and has worked at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, Google, and NASA Ames Research Center. To take us through Gravity Ring, Dr. Jeff Greenblatt. Hi, everybody. I'm really thrilled to tell you about the Gravity Ring project today. The Gravity Ring is going to be a key technology demonstration project that we plan to build, assemble, and operate in low Earth orbit in just a few years' time. And we're going to use an orbital version of the D-Star that you've been hearing about 
called the PSTAR, which stands for Prototype Structural Truss Assembly Robot. And what's really a big deal about this gravity ring is that it's going to be, it's a huge ring. It's going to measure 60 meters or nearly 200 feet in diameter. This is a 40% scale version of the Voyager station's outer ring truss. And not only are we going to be able to build something this large in space, we're going to be able to make it spin in order to produce artificial gravity at up to Mars level. Uh, this is a necessary precursor before we build something as large as gravity, as large as Voyager Station. And the reason is we have all of these technical milestones that we have to be able to demonstrate so that we can build larger structures in space. So uh, with the Gravity Ring project, which we expect to be able to build and launch within two to three years time, although once it's in orbit, we will assemble it in, in an order of a few days. Um, this will allow us to demonstrate the ability to construct things in space. And then once the station is assembled to, uh, to demonstrate uh, orbit stabilization, uh, orbit maintenance, we'll be able to spin it up and down several times and show that that goes well. And uh, most importantly, provide stable levels of artificial gravity with a minimum of vibration or other unwanted effects. Now, besides being a technology demonstration, Gravity Ring can also be a research platform. And we're currently in discussions with several international space agencies and other uh, entities about flying their payloads on the gravity ring. And why we want to do that is there are a lot of researchers who are interested in the effects of partial artificial gravity on both non-living and living systems. And being able to fly a payload on the gravity ring, which we're definitely designing the capability to do, will give uh, researchers an unprecedented opportunity to access that, that uh, intermediate gravity regime. So with the success of P-STAR and the gravity ring, this will then pave the way for OAC to build larger, more complex structures in space, which is obviously necessary if we're going to get to the point of building Voyager Station and other larger structures beyond. And just think about it. You know, with these first few stepping stones, we are paving the way to a solar system-wide sustainable ecosystem built by humans and operated in a way that is environmentally responsible. So please join us on this journey. Uh, I look forward to your support and certainly to uh, the investment that you might be making today. And now I'm going to turn things over to Tim Alatori. So uh, you went over a lot of the stuff that we'd actually already gone over there. Um, as he said, it was a scaled down uh, version of the Voyager Station ring, and they had plans in place to be able to spin it up and, sorry, technical milestones he referred to them as, uh, to be able to spin it up and down regularly without any unwanted side effects like vibration and such. Yep. And there was Dr. Jeff Greenblatt, Chief Visionary Officer, love that title, as well as uh, Dr. Shauna Pandya, who is the Director of Medical Research, who was introducing him and also hosting that whole event. And one of the things that Dr. Uh, Greenblatt was uh, mentioning is that he wants to start right away from the very beginning to have payloads on board once they build this gravity ring uh, using the uh, prototype structural truss assembly robot methodology. They want to immediately take on uh, customer payloads and start doing experiments in microgravity or artificial gravity environments, which I think is uh, really cool and also uh, something that can really help to both demonstrate the efficacy of this platform, as well as to gather more funding for building the eventual Voyager station, which the uh, gravity ring is meant to demonstrate. Yeah, and as we've seen from the, the video, well, actually, we saw a almost like a blueprint-esque image of the, the gravity ring as a wireframe. So mm -hmm. you can kind of see the, the, the basic. It's effectively just a strut, and they're going to spit it up and and slow it down and make sure that everything's working okay. 
Do we know how they're going to do that? Is it going to be like some kind of RCS or... I don't know. I would imagine that there would probably be some form of RCS. I would think that there would have to be some form of at least RCS, maybe even uh, some uh, liquid-fueled motors that are attached to it and permanently attached because if they want to uh, demonstrate the ability to spin it up, slow it down, and do that over and over and over again, there will have to be something attached to the structure in order to do that. And I didn't see anything in the center of the ring. Uh, it looks like it's just going to be a uh, large ring, so probably some RCS equipment on the exterior. Yeah, sounds like probably how they're going to manage the timing. But I'm hoping we see more more information about it as time goes on, and uh, it's something that's certainly going to be worth watching. I think uh, becoming multiplanetary will definitely touch on it again when it comes back around in the future. Which actually won't be that far away, because one of the things that uh, Dr. Greenblatt said is that he is expecting this to be, I believe he said, in operation in the next two to three years, which is a highly ambitious timeline. Uh, if they even just start construction in the next two or three years, that's still highly ambitious, because for a structure that is 60 meters in diameter, that's uh, 200 feet in Imperial units, that's quite a lot of materials. That's several metric tons of material that's going to take quite a few launches to get that up into space. Not only the materials for the truss, but also the P-Star assembly system, because at the very least, they'll need one machine to assemble all of this, which means that that's going to be something that weighs quite a lot. That's also something that will have to be extensively tested to make sure that it can actually successfully assemble all these pieces and make them fit to each other, make sure that everything has uh, good structural integrity, all the all the joints and unions are completely and fully attached. Like there's a there's a lot of things that they have to get right to make this successful. And even just to start that in the next two to three years is highly ambitious. I mean, that's that's like SpaceX speed when it comes to build something and get it up in the air as quickly as possible. Possible. And, you know, SpaceX has billions and billions of dollars to play with for this sort of thing, whereas Gateway Foundation and they, they, they don't have that much funding available to them. Uh, that's actually kind of one of the purposes of this video that this whole presentation that they put together was a form of asking for additional funding. And it's actually not the first time that they've done something like that, because back in 2018, they did a Kickstarter that ultimately didn't complete. It uh, only got 10,000 US dollars. I think their uh, first target was uh, 20,000 US dollars. And then they also had stretch goals of like 200,000 and 500,000 and uh, so forth. And after that, they ended up switching to exploring a lottery, like actually running a lottery to raise funds which Scott Manley actually did a uh, really interesting video about a year ago about them where he was discussing this and how it's not exactly legal for them to do a lottery. Private entities can't do so. Only uh, government-run lotteries are permitted, at least in the United States. So they were talking about how they want to get laws changed to permit them to run a lottery and that they eventually want to raise over 70 billion US dollars to get everything in operation, which means that just a lottery system alone would come under extreme scrutiny for that. So they have a lot of money to raise. And even just to get this prototype up into space, this uh, gravity ring is not going to be cheap. The materials are not going to be cheap. The launches are going to be incredibly expensive. So, I mean, I wish them all the best with that. But two to three years is super ambitious, <laughs> to say the least. I would certainly say so for, for a timeline like that. I would say... <sighs> We've seen that the, the D-Star, we've seen the D-Star operate and build the trusses in the, the video clip recently. 
but that was also in a controlled environment where you had a constant form of gravity. The, the rules are different in orbit where you can build something, you can have something like D-Star operating where you know you're going to have a constant pressure on one part of that uh, machinery. But if you have like a little wobble in something like the, the chains wobble or something, now that can throw the assembly that you're building up into the top part and then it bounces around to the left and right and everything. And those are those are things that I'm sure they're taking into account. But once you're actually in a microgravity environment, the rules are so much different. And to do something of that magnitude in two to three years, extraordinary. <laughs> we have a question from RacerX in the chat there uh, asking, do we know how the station will be shielded compared to the ISS, for example? Now, did you manage to find any details on that? Because I didn't find any details yet, but I do have an answer. I did not. Um, I don't know if the gravity ring itself will be uh, shielded in any way. I think the uh, Voyager station will be that I'm not sure if they're going to be doing uh, water on the exterior of the... Is it water? No, what, what I was going to say is whilst we may not know exactly what they're, they're planning right now, we actually have had a radiation specialist on the show before, Framrick. Wonderful, wonderful man. And uh, he says that the best idea to actually shield yourself from radiation is water within the within the walls, within the cavity of the walls. Because water makes a, a great shielding device for, for any radiation. Uh, there was also another element he mentioned on top as well, but it escapes me right now. It was a lining of something on top. Is it aluminum? It was some material. I don't remember exactly what it was. But going back to the 47 second timestamp in the first assembly, orbital assembly virtual event video that the Gateway Foundation released, that was this uh, past February 1st of this year. Was um, that the beginning one or which, which video are we talking about here? It's the hour long video. Yep. And what was the timestamp again? 47 seconds. So there they have the cutaway of the what what I thought were would probably be Bigelow modules, but uh, apparently not. I don't actually see anything that looks like any particular shielding that they might have in place. Uh, there's in that cutaway, there's like a, a big circular area in one side, and then it looks like like smaller habitat modules on the top and bottom, at least from this relative uh, perspective. But looking at the exterior walls, it doesn't look like there's much of anything where there would be shielding in place. So that I'm not sure. What they might end up doing is that on the International Space Station, they don't have a whole lot of uh, shielding on all components. What they do is they have uh, certain compartments within the International Space Station where astronauts can tuck themselves away in the event of a for example, like a, a solar flare event or something. So they might do something of a similar concept for this, but I'm not quite sure. It's a good question. It certainly is a good question. Uh, there is, there does seem to be at the, if you look at the and the same screenshot you were referring to, which I have up on the stream now, in the spoke uh, near the end, there seems to be a compartment within a compartment on the bottom. Yeah. That, that could be the solar storm shelter that you're thinking of. It might be. That also, from the other renders, looks like that's uh, the port where the like pseudo-Boeing X-37s are going to attach. So, yeah, it's, it's not quite clear where they might have anything in terms of radiation shielding. I don't know. Perhaps these plans will be revised in future updates anyway. Yeah, probably. So, since we're now talking about the Voyager station, uh, should we uh, <laughs> go ahead and shrink it back down and show the uh, Voyager station clip? Yeah, no worries. Let me just pull the clip up before I shrink us back down. 
<laughs> All right. I'm Alatori, who is going to talk about uh, Voyager Station's habitation architecture design. Take it away, Tim. Thanks, Jeff. Voyager Station is the project that got me excited about Orbital Assembly Corporation, and I'm sure you as well. Um, Voyager Station is going to be our big station. Uh, it's going to be have a, a capacity of 400 people on it. And I'm really excited about Gravity Ring, which, which uh, Jeff just talked about, because that's a really near-term demonstrator where we're going to be showing a lot of the technologies that are going to be used to build upon and build Voyager Station. It's going to retire a lot of risk, and it's, it's a direct analog. And you see here Voyager Station, it's going to be 200 meters in diameter. It's going to have 24 habitation modules, and each module is 20 meters in length and 12 meters in diameter, which gives a, a great amount of space for a variety of functions. And also, since the station will be rotating, we're going to have near lunar gravity, which means that we're going to have the function of normal toilets and showers. You'll be able to walk, run, jump in normal yet uh, unnatural ways. And the station will be comprised of a number of uh, fixed modules, which will be used for any configuration of the station, including two that are dedicated to air, water, and power. We're going to have two modules, which will be a kitchen, restaurant, and bar module. Also, we're going to have a gym and activity module, where we'll have concerts and, and sports events and other recreational activities. And the rest of the build-out will be depending on our business partners and, and the market at the time. But we really are hoping that uh, one of our first uses for Voyager Station will be for their hotel aspect. And we'll have hotel rooms and uh, we'll also have villas, crew quarters. We anticipate that government agencies will want to uh, lease or buy some of the modules. And uh, also government and other private companies will use the modules for training of crews headed for Mars and uh, the moon and beyond, hopefully. And Voyager Station will become a platform for a variety of functions and business opportunities. And we really see that it will be a springboard for other entrepreneurs and businesses to build out a variety of space, uh, commerce and industry and tourism activities. So uh, Voyager Station, uh, we hope to have that in plant. Well, our roadmap, as we've laid out today, is D-Star, which is wrapping up fabrication, going to the P-Star, our flight hardware and gravity ring, and right into Voyager station construction and, and our goal is to have it all operational and first flights by the end of this decade and i look forward to seeing you in the kitchen uh, in the in the restaurant there and, and we'll sit down and have a drink and look out the window at uh, the earth rotating below us so until then shauna back to you and there we go so that's some pretty bold statements though yeah one of the things that i liked about this is that tim Alatore, the uh, chief operating officer that was uh, speaking just a moment ago he gave some interesting measurements about everything so the Voyager station will be about 200 meters in diameter, so over 600 feet or two American football fields. I think at one point they said that it will spin with about moon gravity, so about uh, one-sixth of uh, Earth gravity. And that would put it at, I think, if my math is right, a little under one rotation per minute, being at 200 uh, meters in diameter. So they also want to be able to hold up to 400 people in 24 habitation modules. Each habitation module will be about 20 meters in length and 12 meters in diameter. There were some interesting renders that they made where the habitation modules, at least uh, some of the villas, I guess, are quite spacious inside. There's quite a lot of room in there, so I'm sure that this is going to be something that is not cheap. You will have to probably have a net worth at least in the seven or eight figures in order to afford one of these villas. 
I mean, considering that one night aboard the International Space Station will set you back about 35,000 US dollars. That's just for the room and board. So I can't imagine how much it would cost per night to be aboard one of those villas. Really interesting things that Tim Alatore mentioned there. But he also said that the first major aspiration they have for this is that they want to build a hotel. They want to have a kitchen, a bar, a gym, an entertainment hall. One of those had me particularly interested where he said that they want to have a bar in space. Has there ever been anyone who actually got like uh, just completely housed in, in, in space, like got just totally hammered drunk? Because I wonder what that would do to you. That's one of them questions uh, I think science will find out. <laughs> <laughs> but there's there are so many other things because like, I mean, one of the things that I find particularly interesting about this is that it's given that they want to make a hotel. Let's go ahead and uh, get the elephant out of the room. That's going to be the several miles high club at some point. So uh, there will be a lot of interesting firsts that would happen here. People will get drunk in space, watch maybe a symphony in space, have sex in space. There's uh, <laughs> space flicks and chill. Space flicks and chill. <laughs> yeah. So there are a lot of interesting directions for this to go. One of the things that I, I find particularly fascinating about this is that we just talked in the past three episodes of Becoming Multiplanetary about space tourism in the near future. And with them wanting to build the gravity ring prototype in the next two to three years, and then Voyager Station probably not long after that, that may be the very next step that they have in space tourism, where you can not only just take a trip up to space and just like bounce up and back, bounce back down or uh, orbit a few times, but you could actually potentially go aboard a luxury hotel space station and watch Earth below you as you spin and orbit. So really fascinating where they're going with this. One that fascinated me actually was saying that, you know, government might want to use some of these modules for training astronauts for, you know, that's a really good concept right there. And it could be a potential for contracts with the likes of SpaceX or NASA for a station situated zero-g module effectively well not zero-g module but you know for i mean they could even use it as research into uh, long-term space exposure as well yeah that's actually a really good idea for them to make this a testing ground for what would be the long-term effects of somebody in lunar gravity so if they're going to be uh, spinning that at uh, a little under one rotation a minute that'll put them and i think they uh, did say that uh, they want to have it at lunar gravity from the habitation modules that's right yeah so rather than uh, take the expense of sending somebody to the moon and having the equipment to sustain people on the moon for a extended period of time, which would be an extraordinary cost. Instead, if they did this uh, aboard a low Earth orbit space station, that would give them a much cheaper option of doing that, especially if it's not the sole mission. It's just one of the uh, additional missions that they can do with uh, the alongside the primary purpose of this uh, station, in effect, being a hotel plus a training ground and other things. So having the moon much closer than I, I, I forget how far away it is, a couple uh, few hundred thousand miles, I think like that, like 200,000, something like that, however far away the moon is. Instead of needing to travel that far and get your lunar insertion trajectory absolutely perfect, you can just go to a low Earth orbit space station, have a similar simulated gravity and study much closer to Earth. And then if something goes wrong, you don't have to worry about breaking lunar gravity and coming back to Earth. You can just hop aboard one of those, I guess, Boeing X-37s <laughs> and just come straight back to Earth. So the other thing as well uh, you mentioned there about studying closer to Earth, 
if you think about it, it might not be a problem like Moon Earth, but Mars Earth definitely, the lag in communications. Whereas if you're studying on a station which is simulating lunar gravity, you could communicate with that station probably a lot faster than you could uh, something else, you know? Right. I don't know if they would be able to spin it to Mars gravity if they wanted to uh, test that, because now you're talking for a 200 meter in diameter station, probably around two rotations a minute. And that might be stressing the uh, the structural integrity of, uh, of that station to uh, take it from one sixth gravity to one third gravity. But still, they could use that to do some experiments to figure out what would it take for people to do things on a Mars type gravity. Plus, also going back to the uh, earlier question about shielding on the moon, and also to a pretty sig uh, significant degree, even on Mars, there isn't really much of any shielding at all, especially on the moon. There's, there's basically no shielding. Whereas in low Earth orbit, that's something they don't have to worry about as much with the space station, because given the Van Allen belts and the magnetosphere that extends around the Earth, they are fairly well shielded against those events. They, I mean, they do still have exposure to radiation in low Earth orbit, but nowhere near as much risk as they would have on the surface of Mars or especially on the moon. Kage, I gotta say chat's on ball tonight, man. The shuttle is a dream chaser from Sierra Nevada Corp. Hel Helder Afonso? Helder Hyder? The text is small, so I can't see if it's an I or an L. Yeah, they've said that in the chat. And it's 1.89 rotations per minute, thanks to Savolch. Nice. <laughs> Thank you both. Mars gravity, yeah. Like I said, chat's on point. They they've been answering this away whilst you've been speaking. Awesome. Thank you both. And uh, they told they planned uh, for creating uh, 0.4G Mars-level gravity also. Impressive. All right. I mean, that's uh, going from a little under one rotation a minute to 1.89 rotations a minute. That's um, that's not insignificant. That's uh, that's a lot of uh, uh, stress. Uh, is it centripetal or centrifugal uh, stress? I think it's centrifugal stress. Centrifugal, yeah. Yeah. But since we're on the subject of centrifugal um, uh, uh, spin, one of the things that I find kind of really interesting about this is that with it being a 200 meter in diameter uh, space station, there is one big thing that they need to take into account with this, and that is the uh, Coriolis effect. So when you have on Earth, because of just the sheer diameter of the Earth, uh, you don't feel the rotation. You don't uh, feel any difference from your head and your feet in gravity because the, the difference, uh, there there is a difference, there is a gravity difference uh, from your head to your feet, but it's so, 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 so uh, minuscule that you don't actually feel it. But when you're talking about something of a Coriolis effect where you could have a um, difference in uh, gravity felt at your head and your uh, feet, um, that can even change the amount of blood that gets to your head. Uh, blood could uh, start pulling in your lower extremities and then you could potentially pass out. So um, there, there's some really interesting challenges that they face with this. For example, there are uh, otolithic organs in your vestibular system called the utricle and saccule, and those are how your vestibular system, your inner ear, detect linear accelerations. So like forward, backward, side to side, and stuff like that. And they detect this, uh, it's, this has actually been studied, they detect this differently on Earth than they do in space. During the Skylab, uh, when the Skylab happened in the 1970s, I don't remember what year, uh, they used an experiment called the rotating litter chair. 
And it showed that while humans can withstand higher spin rates on Earth, they didn't actually study prolonged exposure. They only did short, rapid burst spins uh, and like confusing changes in orientation. And they found that astronauts that would get uh, nauseous from the same motions or changes in motion on Earth uh, did not get nauseous while in space, but they only tested short bursts. They didn't test to see how long can somebody go into a continual spin and not suffer any effects from it? And not only that, but while they're in that continual spin, can they also turn their head left and right and up and down and not feel the effects uh, of that, uh, feel that Coriolis effect uh, that would make them nauseous? So it really remains to be seen about how this would actually work. And this this has been discussed uh, in a lot of cases to see, okay, well, what, what exactly is the optimal size of a space station, a, a rotating space station, to get rid of that Coriolis effect? Some say as little as 200 meters in diameter could be enough, and others say, well, no, you need to go kilometers wide uh, before you can really uh, get rid of that effect and not have any uh, uh, motion sickness that can come from it. So really interested to see what they discover out of this and how many people just have a miserable time <laughs> aboard and how many people just enjoy it and don't feel anything. Uh, they had a, a rotating uh, space station in the Expanse as well, did they not? Where they had it so that when you were in the center, you were moving slowly, but as you got down towards the edge, you would fall faster down the, the yep. ladder. They've had rotating space stations in practically every uh, uh, sci-fi series it's been in the expanse uh, 2001 a space odyssey it's been um in several uh star trek series and movies there have been a lot of uh, sci-fi series that explore that not only the uh rotational space station with a uh, ring but also like um i forget the name for it but the uh, uh long tube style space station there have been uh, a few different ones depicted i uh, i mean of course halo <laughs> the halo station <laughs> so you know there there are a lot of them uh depicted yeah chat you guys have any questions on anything you've seen so far that we might perhaps be able to answer just give you guys a few minutes to think about something and while you are thinking of some questions i just want to give a quick shout out to our other shows on total space so you are currently uh, listening and or watching uh, Becoming Multiplanetary. But at Total Space, um, we also have the space update where Ryan goes into detail about current space events every Wednesday. And uh, there's also uh, Deep Dive with Miko, uh, which goes into great detail about uh, a lot of various space topics every Friday. Uh, you can find all of our shows on our new website. That's totalspace.net and also uh, on YouTube, uh, which is youtube.com slash totalspace. So please be sure to give them a listen. And if you like them, then please click like, uh, share, and subscribe. And we have a question from RacerX. How many, I believe that's a Starship, uh, how many yeah. Starship missions based on Starship capacity do we think it would take uh, to uh, complete station construction? Basic rough guess. I don't know about the entire station, but I reckon you could get a lot of the struts up in maybe two or three because they all collapse into each other so you could launch those up no problem i think it's more to do with the discrete parts that go onto the station after that the human engineers need to tack on i think that's where you're going to see a lot of the starship launches 
Yeah, I guess it's I guess it depends on how how much they can fold in uh, everything together. Some of the renders that they showed uh, demonstrated that there are a lot of things that they can stack together. But I would wonder about the uh, the P star if that is something that could be folded in on itself, or if it would need to be sent up uh, fully assembled because of just the all the various moving parts on it and uh, chain assemblies and everything else. It might need to be something sent up. Uh, completely constructed as is, or at least for the most part. So, not sure. Given the cargo diameter of a starship, I would say for P Star, probably maybe at least six, if not more. I'd um, say one for the P Star machine, right? And maybe three to five for the struts for gravity ring. Totally. But you also have to take into consideration the weight, because uh, with something something like the gravity ring, in order to sustain as much uh, centrifugal force as it'll have uh, when being uh, spun, it needs to be something that has some pretty good structural integrity to it. So maybe they could do that with lightweight aluminum or titanium. Um, but there, it's not only the size requirements, um, but also the weight requirements. So um, I think to begin with, at least uh, at the start of uh, Starship launches. They're not going to be nearly at their uh, full payload capacity, so it might take quite a few launches. I would say at least six, maybe maybe closer to ten. Not sure. Yeah, until we start seeing some idea of how they plan to break down these discrete units into this the small things, you know, and, and how much they're going to weigh. Um, I would hope that in the near future they would have some kind of a plan that shows this, like how much it's all going to weigh, how much will fit into one launch, how many launches do they need, uh, probably drop a, a contract with SpaceX to be able to deliver them. Savolch has one. Yep. So Savolch asks, what do you think about using such a rotating habitat structure as part of a Mars cycler? So we should probably first give a quick background on what a Mars cycler is. Yeah, uh, so effectively, <laughs> when is a space station not a space station, right, Kage? Right, yeah. I remember that you brought that one up during the episode, I believe, we recorded that. So, a little bit of background. A few episodes ago, uh, I believe we were talking about space stations during the episode, actually. It was our episode on space stations, current and future. And Sabolch brought up at that time something called the Mars Cycler, where effectively you have a space station that is also in orbit between Earth and Mars. So, not only is the space station, you know, it's, it, it's moving as well. So it's, it's effectively like a taxi service, more or less. A really, really big taxi. Yeah, so um, a Mars cycler is, and there, there are different kinds of cycles that have uh, varying um, uh, Earth-Mars transfer times, uh, but a Mars cycler is basically a, uh, a craft that would go back and forth from Earth to Mars to Earth to Mars to Earth to Mars and over and over and over again. So I, So going back to the question, I think that it would actually be a really good idea to have such a structure as a Mars cycler because the longer that you have people in a microgravity or zero G uh, environment, the longer or the, the quicker that you can have um, a situation where their bones atrophy, their muscles atrophy. So if you look at, for example, um, and this was actually even something we uh, talked about on that space station episode that Rich was referring to, uh, that when you have people that are aboard the uh, International Space Station for an extended period of time, they end up needing assistance to get out of the capsule that uh, when they come back to Earth. And if you have people flying to Mars, it may take, you know, three months or more to get from Earth to Mars. By the time they land on Mars, 
well, there's nobody there to help them out of the capsule. They just kind of have to sit and wait in their seat until their bodies adjust and get ready to work within that that Mars gravity. So if they were already exposed to some sort of uh, artificial gravity, I think that would be a fantastic idea because then there's less of a chance of their muscles and bones atrophying. And also, if they are simulating Mars gravity on the way to Mars, that would actually give them the opportunity to uh, build up their uh, build up being ready for that kind of a gravity. And then similarly, on the way back, where they're coming from Mars to Earth, if that structure were able to uh, simulate one one uh, g uh, Earth gravity, then they would not have to really worry about any sort of recovery time coming back. Or it could start at Earth, uh, Mars gravity and slowly get up to Earth gravity uh, the closer they get to Earth. So that way, it's uh, kind of like builds them up a little by a little uh, for uh, coming back to Earth. So I, yeah, it would be a great idea to use one of those. Sorry, I was just looking something up whilst you were doing that. I was actually seeing if I could find an answer to Susie's question. She asks, who is currently funding the Gateway Foundation? Is it private or public? And are returns on investment expected any time soon? Now, unfortunately, they don't really make the funding information public as far as I can see. However, the recent announcement that they just did, uh, they aimed at investors, so I assume that they are going for public funding right now. I'm assuming they'll ask for investors to come on board for uh, basically as part of the journey, and then they would be for a percentage of the company, and they would. As for return on investment, it really is, you know, it's one of those how, lo- how long is a piece of string? Best answer you can give is twice half its length. <laughs> Yeah, so it's um doesn't really uh, I I I don't think that they're going to mention that anytime soon, but I I think it looks like they want SpaceX to be an investor, and given that um uh, Helder uh, discovered that the mini shuttles are dream chasers from Sierra Nevada Corporation, maybe they want Sierra Nevada Corporation to also be an investor. So uh, whether or not they actually are currently investors, who knows? Um. But at the very least, uh, the return on investment uh, with the gravity ring, uh, I think they expect there to be a return on investment uh, pretty much from the very beginning. Uh, As uh, Dr. Jeff Greenblatt was uh, mentioning with the uh, gravity ring, they want to start from the beginning with hosting experiments, hosting payloads aboard the gravity ring. So at least there would be some return on investment. As for the Voyager station, who knows? I mean, it it, uh, really depends on if and when they get there. Yeah, and I think it's one of those things that the more people jump on the bandwagon, the more they're likely they are to succeed, Uh, especially when you have partners jumping in, because then you have, you know, services that can be provided at cost, because it's all a partnership going forward, um, all focusing on the one goal. I think that's the most likely way it's going to succeed, whether we're going to see this big partnership coming together. We're seeing elements of it already. As you've seen the dream chasers in the in the picture, thank you uh, to all of that, and also we saw the crew dragon variant and the cargo dragon variant with the trunks attached to it as well. Right. So there are a couple of other questions. Shabalks is asking. Also, can they make the adaption changing? Make the adaptation or adaption? Yeah, adaptation changing the RPM slowly. Well, I imagine so. So going back to the earlier question about a uh, Mars cycler. 
it would make sense to do a like let's say they're coming from mars to earth start the rotation at one-third gravity so that they could simulate the uh gravity on mars and then slowly ramp it up over the next like let's say it takes three months for a return journey over those next three months ramp that up to two-thirds and then finally uh full earth gravity so that way by the time they get back to earth they are pretty well acclimated to how gravity would be on earth or maybe they don't even need to go to a full g spin maybe they could just get it up to uh, half earth gravity and then by the time they get back to earth and they can finish the recovery on earth yeah great questions racer x asks perhaps atmospheric pressure in combination with the artificial gravity could offset any physiological side effects do we know uh, any data on how much atmospheric pressure the modules can hold we would have only known some kind of data if they were actually the big low modules, but they're not. They're uh, original modules, so I we have no idea where they're pulling their designs from. So at sea level, it's about 14 PSI, I think. What is the pressure aboard the International Space Station? I know it's less, but I don't think it's a whole lot less. can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, I'm not sure if the atmospheric pressure would change much of anything because I know that when astronauts come back from an extended stay aboard the International Space Station, they do go through a uh, repressurization, just like divers go through when uh, coming back up. So I'm not sure if the uh, atmospheric pressure would be as much of a consequential effect to consider as would be the uh, artificial gravity, because that's really where the, the long-term effects become the most damaging. 14.7 PSI is the answer to your question. Oh, they, they use sea level pressure uh, in the International Space Station. 14.7 PSI is, is what was returned, yeah. Interesting. Well... They uh, they do still go through a repressurization. I think for who was who was the astronaut uh, Scott something, the the one that was aboard for like almost a year. Oh, uh, he had a twin as well. Right, right. Because he he was in a barometric pressure chamber for a short uh, period when he came back. He also is now in politics. I'm trying to remember his last name. <laughs> I can't remember his name off the top of my head. I think he's part of the House of Reps for Arizona now. Scott Kelly. There yes, you go. thank Scott you, Kelly. Susie. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, astronaut uh, Scott Kelly. The atmospheric pressure thing is something that actually, so long as you do it uh, slow and steady, humans can recover from that pretty quickly. Pressure in an airliner is way lower than sea level, John Sawyer says. Yeah, so it's it's not really that damaging of an issue. It's really the the issue is the artificial gravity, or rather the lack of gravity for an extended stay in space or extended travel, and then possible complications from the effect you mentioned earlier as well. So if they do that slow enough, especially if they're coming back from Mars, then that would significantly reduce the recovery time that astronauts need to go through when coming back. So rather than the uh, extended amount of time, like what astronaut Scott Kelly had to go through coming back, maybe uh, astronauts who traveled three months to Mars, stayed on Mars for eight months, traveled three months back, only need a couple of days to recover on Earth, and then they're back with their families. They've got all that time to travel between the two, so why not use it in some form of rehabilitation? Right, exactly. Right. right, so shall we wrap it up then, Kage? I believe so. I'll go ahead and start. Thank you everyone for listening. Happy to have you have joined us. I am Kage, one of the co-hosts of Becoming Multiplanetary, and we have... I've been Rich LB, the other co-host of Becoming Multiplanetary. Just to recap quickly, today we talked about the Gateway Foundation, Voyager Station, Gravity Ring, and Orbital Assembly Corporation. Hopefully you guys found that stuff interesting. I mean, the announcement only came a few days ago, I believe, wasn't it? A few days? February 1st. Yeah. 
four or five days ago. Yeah, that's about right. And watching those videos as well and seeing it all come together uh, automatic is is just you know now now it's wanting to see the real thing up in space. That's going to be like mm, so good. Yeah, agreed. As always, at the end of every episode, how can I not? I've always got to go through my patrons. But before you do that. Just want to give a quick shout out, uh, shout out to everyone who was watching and listening and uh, active in the chat. So uh, great questions. Thank you so much. And yeah, Rich. Taking it away. So yeah, and as Kage said, before I start, thank you, chat, for being great. You've been great um, helping us out if we've been getting stuck on a few names or whatever. And also really good questions. Definitely do keep them coming in. So without further ado, a big thank you to all of our supporters. We have Warhol, we have Adrian Moisa, we have Angry Astronaut, we have Howard Walker, who also helped us out in chat earlier. I think asked us a question as well. That was really nice. We have Sammy Oscuro, also in the Stinger NSW. We had him on the show not too long ago as well. We have What About It. We have Jishuan and Sebastian from To The Future. We have Gio Pagliari. I noticed Gio actually put a comment in chat earlier as well. I saw you there, Gio. Framrick as well. We mentioned Framrick earlier. Um, and Susie R, who's been sat in the chat with us, giving us moral support through the muted microphone. <laughs> and Marco as well. We've seen him floating about in chat tonight as well. Thank you all for your support. Every bit of it means so much to us. And just big thanks. Like We can never thank you enough. Yes, and it's through your support that we were able to do things like um, making our new website. Um, we did that ourselves, but of course, there are certain software licenses that uh, we need to uh, procure for that. So with our podcast, we now go through a few different CDN services, depending on what the CDN is providing. Those are things that are, at least in some cases, not free. So from your Patreon support, we were able to acquire those and build a new website that we hope you all enjoy. And if you haven't checked out our website, I encourage you to please do so. Uh, that's totalspace.net. Definitely put in some hours over that one. In fact, <laughs> funny story, Kage and I ended up putting in so many hours over the website that we actually forgot to allocate time to research a VM episode that week. Yeah, yeah, we did. <laughs> we had to push the recording out a day because we uh, worked so hard on that. We're like, oh, crap, it's Friday. Uh, uh, what are we going to do? <laughs> Yeah, there was uh, a lot of work we did. It was quite a hectic week that week, but um, no, we do it all for the love of you fans. You know, you guys motivate us to to do all this crazy stuff and speak with all these awesome people. And uh, you just got to love the space community. It's just such a welcoming community. Hashtag Team Space. Hell yeah. All right. So with that, guys, thank you all very much for joining us. Thank you all for your questions. Uh, you've been great. This has been Becoming Multiplanetary, and we'll see you next week. Thanks, everyone. Bye.